Hello, welcome to the Eating for Health podcast. I'm Dr. Harriet Home, founder of Healthy Eating Doctor, registered nutritionist and doctor. I studied medicine at Cambridge University, worked in the NHS for over a decade, have a PhD in genetics, lecture on nutrition and was commissioned to write a novel degree combining culinary skills, nutrition and health. I'm on a mission to break down nutrition myths and share science-backed nutrition to help empower you. I'll share some interviews, theories and practical tips focused around nutrition and health. Stay tuned to find out more. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Kimberly to talk with me today about being a GP and giving nutrition advice. Kimberly started off training as a surgeon but is now a GP in Northwest London. She's a first-time mother with an 18-month-old son called Paulie and on Instagram is called Dr. Kimberly. Kimberly started her account to support other mums in the steep learning curve associated with having a baby and navigating lockdown during maternity leave. She also works with women and new mums as an empowerment and life coach, teaches medical students and is the chief technology officer at a large GP practice. I'll pop links to how you can find Kimberly in the show notes. So hi, Kimberly. Thanks so much for coming on and having a chat to me about nutrition. Um, it's really great to great to speak to you. And it's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. It's always nice to connect with people on Instagram because I know we've not met in real life, but um, it's funny how you feel like you get to know people on uh, social media sometimes. It is. No, I agree entirely. I do feel like I know you and I know all about Paulie and, yeah. and your son and, and everything. Um, so just really wanted to find out what you sort of felt as a GP about nutrition is it something you learned much about in medical school was it something that you um, learned about as BTS training and how prepared do you feel when um, your patients come through the door and ask you questions really? So I would say thinking back to medical school the nutrition training was pretty much non-existent I mean I admit some of it might just be my poor memory but um, I don't really remember any formal training in nutrition I remember the kind of like the digestion side of things so learning about like the micronutrients and macronutrients from that point of view but I don't really remember people sitting down and telling me about good nutrition um, so really the things that I've learned have been things I've taught myself um, uh, during my training there wasn't really anything focused again during GP training um, I also did surgical training and there definitely wasn't any nutrition there um, so yeah so nutrition really hasn't been covered um, formally it's all been things that I've picked up along the way myself or because I've you know had an interest really um, so I think when I was an F2 so two years after becoming a doctor I did get quite interested in nutrition I did that typical thing of joining a CrossFit gym and learning about the paleo diet and kind of <laughs> I did that for a couple of years and that was really where which sparked my interest in terms of learning about nutrition um, the worry that I always have when patients come to me with nutrition is I feel like the advice changes. So, you know, in the 80s, there was this whole thing of like, oh, fats are evil. You shouldn't eat fat. Um, and so everything was advertised as being fat free. And of course, that came at the expense of instead just replacing it with sugar. Mm -hmm. And then nowadays, there's been a, a swing more towards the sugar is evil kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm just always really cautious about demonizing a macronutrient. I don't think that's a good attitude to have. And I think also we have to be a bit more realistic when we give advice. So, you know, you can point someone to what you think the perfect diet is, but if it's not realistic for them, it's not going to happen. It's a waste of your time, really. Yeah, um, absolutely. I work in an area of northwest London where there's um, 
a very big kind of South Asian and Indian population um, and, you know, giving them advice on a Mediterranean diet, it just doesn't, it's not really relatable to them. Um, so we have to, I think, give advice in terms of that individual in their environment. You know, they're also often working really long hours. They're not going to have, you know, two hours in the evening to sit and prepare a fresh, day, a fresh meal. They're just going to stop off at a local takeaway on the way home, most of them. Yeah. Um, so the advice that I give day to day actually is quite personalized. I try you know, I try to give pointers of things that might be helpful, like having more vegetables and more fruit. But otherwise, I try to make it quite personalized. I sound like you're a really uh, patient-centered GP and your care is, is wonderful doing that. And um, I, I, I agree entirely. You've got to make it personalized because absolutely um, it really depends on the sort of cultural trends and what you're going to eat and whether it's going to be achievable. So do you, do you sort of point them to any specific resources or anything that you find helpful? So it, it depends a little bit on the individual. So the younger population who are a bit more techie, I do often send them resources. There's a really nice um, patient.info has some like Mediterranean diet and some tips there. Um, we have got um, some forms that we've made uh, in-house as well. So they're kind of um, very much uh, aimed at our population. So, you know, talking about, you know, having this instead of a chapati or replacing some rice with some vegetables. So that's something that we've made, made ourselves locally for our population that we often send out as well or print out, you know, back when we were doing a lot more face-to-face. -face. Um, so I do rely on tech quite a lot um, because I, I like to empower the patients as well. Like, I don't necessarily want them to be too dependent on me, to be honest with you. I wish I had, you know, loads of time to talk in detail about things but realistically it's 10 minutes yeah. um so i like to point them to online sources at least teach them about um general concepts of having a healthy diet and then point them to online stuff and just sort of you brought up that 10 minute thing um so it must be really challenging speaking to someone in 10 minutes i know you know when i was a doctor that i spent far longer with them in a and e than 10 minutes by the time i'd done a history clerked them you know examined them thought about the management plan it takes a lot longer than 10 minutes most of the time so it must be really difficult not only to get all that information but also give them the medical information and then even think about nutrition so does nutrition often get sort of fallen off the list or, you know don't have priority or or how do you find it yeah i think absolutely nutrition is probably the the i don't want to say the least important but it's the thing that goes first really so you know you've got 10 minutes to uh, you know to talk to the patient about what their issue is and it's very unusual for a patient to specifically say I want advice on my diet yeah. the diet advice will come more because of something else so it'll be you know your cholesterol's raised and then you have a discussion about trying to help to reduce their cholesterol so um in some areas so I think diabetes and cholesterol I do I do tend to push diet um, but in other areas, it, it's kind of it falls to the wayside. And if it comes up opportunistically, then I'll chat about it for a bit. Yeah. But sadly, in 10 minutes, you've got to prioritize the kind of um, safety aspect to start yeah. with. So I've got to do safe information grabbing, as you know, um, weigh up what the diagnosis might be, what the best medical advice would be. And then often as an afterthought, there's, oh, and there's some lifestyle things as well. And believe yeah. me, it's not the way that I think many of us want to be practicing. I think most of us would much rather be proactive than reactive um, but realistically in the NHS as it is at the moment where it's very overloaded and you know you're realistically only getting 10 minutes it's it's tricky to bring in much lifestyle medicine. 
No, I can imagine. And even more so now with COVID, it must be incredibly difficult, challenging environment to be working in. Um, and yes, I can I can completely understand. So um, and so much of dietary advice is for the long term and that, you know, changes aren't going to be you know, seen immediately. They take such a long time. So it's very difficult to have that. Um, it's very difficult to impart that information. I, th I think when you've got a short amount of time, someone's come with a sort of problem, you're trying to solve the problem and, and safety net appropriately and move safely onto the next one. It's really challenging. So is yeah. there, if you could go back to medical school again, would you have liked to have had more information or would you have liked sort of formal teaching on it? What would have helped you? Yeah, what I think would have been really useful that I've only picked up since is just understanding the history of diet advice and why it is that things seem to change so much. And perhaps um, as a little bit more of a foundation so that when I do then see these new diet fads come through, I feel a bit more um, competent to, to judge them and know whether it's, you know, a bit of a snake oil salesman that's in front of us who's peddling a book or whether there's actually good research behind what they're suggesting. Um, yeah. I'm always really cautious when I hear about new diets because... Um, like I said, I wonder about the motives behind the person sometimes. Perhaps I'm a bit cynical like that. No, um, but I, I like to see research. Right. We should be doing evidence-based medicine. And at the end of the day, sadly, for a lot of these newer diets that are coming through, it is going to take time for the research to follow it. So um, I'm cautious about new stuff that comes through. And I tend to stick to the things I feel have a good evidence base, like the Mediterranean diet, for example. Um, yeah, and, and then trying to avoid that demonizing of macronutrients or certain foods that I think is, honestly, can be quite unhealthy in terms of psychologically at times. Yeah, and you can really lead to that restrictive pattern where people become really obsessive about it. And it's also really difficult to maintain in the long term. So, yeah, I think in just the same way that you practice evidence based medicine, evidence based nutrition, it's got to, you know, have that sort of the, the animal studies, the human studies, we've got to really understand it in order to be recommending it and uh, I think that's really important so it's great to hear that you you know have the same philosophy on it <laughs> I, I think it, it would have been really helpful you know obviously it's been 10 years since I was in medical school now and a lot has changed and I do teach medical students pretty much daily because I've nearly always got some medical students with me in clinic um, and they're definitely a lot more clued up on this stuff than I was so it's really good to see that the next generation of doctors coming through are more clued up on this i don't know whether they would say it's enough but they feel confident to give diet advice but they certainly seem to be in a better position than i was at that stage well that's that's great that's hope for the future so what's the sort of the top, <laughs> the top nutrition question that you get asked then can you I think because of you know the nature of GP, it's very much problem-based. So it will be a patient's come in, they may not have had any specific symptoms, but we've done some blood tests and they've shown up either that they've got diabetes or their cholesterol is high. I mean, that to us is a huge amount of our workload is to cholesterol and diabetes. I'd say diabetes is actually the more of the two. Um, so a lot of my conversations talk about carbs because you know obviously that affects blood sugars. Um, and it really is quite amazing sometimes about how people just don't understand that you know these carbohydrates get broken down into sugar. They think that sugar is sugar that you know you add to your tea or you yeah. sprinkle on a dessert. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that the food that we're eating has carbohydrates in them. So they they often think they're being really good when they're having rice and things like this. Mm -hmm. um, they don't. Really realize that actually it can be potentially driving that that high sugar yeah, so most of my conversations probably are around poorly controlled diabetes or a new diagnosis of diabetes um in our area in fact i think pretty much across the whole of the uk there are diabetes education programs so mm -hmm. if someone's newly diagnosed we send them into there where they do get 
a bit more time, thankfully, um, dedicated to diet and exercise and so on. So I think that's really helpful that most areas have that set up because as a GP, there's no way you can give them that time that they need to really understand their diets. No, absolutely. It does, you know, it will undoubtedly take some time to go through it, all the diet history, you know, all that education as, as well. So uh, I guess it's sort of working as part of a, an MDT and, and a collaborative approach. All of the team members are important. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you brought up the MDT because, you know, I really would love to have more of a relationship with our dietitians. Unfortunately, they're just so busy and I guess popular in terms of referrals that the referral criteria into them is actually quite high. Mm. So, you know, even if patients come into me and they say, you know, I'm a little bit overweight, I could really do with some support. Unfortunately, unless they reach a certain threshold, I can't refer them into the dietitian. I have to point them to the things that are in the community already or online resources. So, you know, things like Slimming World, Weight Watchers, things that I know we have locally, right. where I may not even necessarily agree with some of the, <laughs> the principles behind it. But yeah. until they reach a certain threshold or they've got other medical problems, I unfortunately can't refer them into dietitians. So it's it's a bummer, really, because, you know, I, sometimes I chance it and I try and then I get the rejection letter back to me. Um, it's really quite frustrating, though, because you obviously want to be the best of your patients and you can see that, you know, they possibly really benefit from that. And just as you say, um, you know, some of these big companies that are, I, I'm not going to name them, but it's all about sort of calorie counting. And I don't agree with calorie counting, I think. Um, because you could have five, you know, restrict yourself to 500 calories a day and you could have 500 calories of ice cream or 500 calories of broccoli. Um, so I think the sort of the principle of calorie counting is actually really flawed. So, um, so yeah, no, I agree. It's a real shame that we can't sort of have a sort of grassroots support um, to help prevent some of these diseases. And in, instead, they will come back in 10 years, you know, and with diabetes or or, you know, the metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of cancer and all of, the, you know, the other things that we know are, are affected by diet. So it must be quite frustrating for you. It is frustrating. It's also that, you know, if a patient's come to you and specifically asks, it shows they have a level of motivation that you really want to to take you know you want to you want to run with it but then when you know that there's not a lot that you can offer beyond your own personal advice and and signposting them to certain things online or in the community it feels like you're really missing an opportunity there and absolutely yeah in, in terms of you know that they they want to change they've got this drive and yet you can't you can't harness that that energy and so unless they are truly really motivated and they're gonna self-teach and and learn by themselves you know that you're missing an opportunity and like you said 10 years later they're back with diabetes yeah. metabolic syndrome all these things they all go hand in hand yeah absolutely it's really it's really sad um so do you think that you've obviously got um con well congratulations on your little boy he's probably not quite <laughs> so little anymore now that you're back at work <laughs> don't you leave but um do you think that pregnancy sort of focused you on nutrition at all or not so much you know it probably it, to honestly, it added a lot of guilt because I had really bad hypermesis. So I was nauseous and or vomiting at least once a day until about 26 weeks of pregnancy. So everyone was like, oh, you know, it will be fine. After 12 weeks, everything gets easier. It didn't, unfortunately. Um, and I felt really guilty because obviously I know that you're growing a, a human inside you. You want to be giving them yeah. as much nutrition as you can. And sadly, all I could manage really was like some bread and some crackers and just really beige and healthy food. Um, I was taking a multivitamin, so I felt like I was at least ticking some boxes. I, but I, I, I had the same thing. 
all the way to the end and it was such a relief when they were born such a relief and mine were both made of special k so that's all i could eat yeah <laughs> terrible so, so i it is and, and you have all this guilt because you know like you want to be giving them all these building blocks so they can grow and develop and be healthy so yeah my my first half of my pregnancy really was was a write-off i mean i was just trying to get through the day mm-hmm. um and i guess since he's been born Yes, I'm a bit more conscious of nutrition, especially since he started weaning. I mean, he actually has cow's milk allergy, so that added a whole level of complexity that I wasn't anticipating. So he really was quite sensitive, so he was even reacting through my breast milk. So unfortunately, it meant that I had to become dairy-free. And let me tell you, I never realised how important chocolate and biscuits and cake was <laughs> until I couldn't have them. And you know what? It wasn't a huge part of my diet, but it's that thing of like, you know, when yeah. you know you can't have something, you want it all the more. So, um, yeah, so having to cut it out myself, um, it's quite interesting because my, my taste, my palate has changed. So I still can't tolerate milk now. So I used to have milk in my tea and now I can only tolerate having oat milk because it smells it smells really farmy now. I know it sounds terrible, but when I drink milk that in a tea, it smells like a farm. <laughs> so. I had a really similar experience to you. So my son was um, had cow's milk protein allergy and I gave up uh, yeah, dairy, soya and gluten. It was, uh, as you say, a challenge. Um, and I think, so he's five years old. Um, so much has changed now. There's so many different plant-based milks, so many, you know, vegan products. It's, you know, your sort of local cafe when we get back to, you know, post-COVID times. Um, they had, you know, a huge array of different milks that they didn't have at the time. So um, I, I also had the same thing as well. I couldn't go back to dairy afterwards, but the only thing that got me back onto dairy was my second pregnancy. So it'd be interesting if you have uh, another one. That is interesting. You know, also during my pregnancy, I went completely off meat and, and I'm, we do eat quite a lot. So my partner's South African, so we do eat a fair amount of meat, um, but I, could, I couldn't even stand the smell of meat. So again, for the first, I guess, two thirds of my pregnancy, I just could not eat any meat, which was very strange for him so I was having to go and buy all these vegetarian meals and stuff that I could have while he had our normal sort of food (laughs) Um, but you know like you said the world is a much better place now in terms of having his allergies so um, I've I've still been able to have the kind of lazy toddler meals and stuff in the you know in the fridge because a lot of them are dairy free Mm -hmm. thankfully Um, but you're right in terms of milks as well I mean oat milk is our go-to but there's coconut there's soy there's just there's a lot of choice now so I think probably for us weaning wasn't quite so daunting as maybe it was for you going back a few years well so my daughter had cow's milk protein allergy as well and certainly I noticed things had changed massively when you know in the two and a half years since uh between having one and the other that things were much easier second time around there was just so many more products but um yeah it's really important to choose one that's fortified so you're getting that calcium and iodine but um but no, much easier now, and it's great. There's so much, so you know, the sort of allergy menus, um, and that it's a lot easier for people in general with allergies, which I think is really fantastic. It's a great way to be, great direction to be traveling in. Yeah, it does make me wonder, you know, when we were children and you went to a restaurant, I mean, you were lucky if they even labeled things as being vegetarian, let alone had allergens listed. So, I mean, that is one great step forward now. It's so easy to find out about allergens, and people are a lot more clued up. I mean, it, interestingly, I think the people that seem to understand it the most are my, the least, sorry, and my own family. So, my mum, especially, she has has like the best intentions but she's always like oh is is butter dairy yeah yeah butter's got dairy in it you know like, oh about cheese yeah yeah yeah, yeah. cheese has got <laughs> just, 
So and Vanessa, she checks all the boxes and packages and stuff just in case. But it's funny how um you know the world really is much more clued up yeah. now. And there's that um I don't know if you've seen it the uh, Food Maestro app. I think it was oh, built yeah, by yes. a yeah. consultant, and it's excellent. So if you've got um if you've got any allergies, try that because it's a really helpful app. Yeah, especially when we go back out into the real world again after COVID, we can go to restaurants again and eat out. Yeah, absolutely. Long way. Uh, can't wait for that. But anyway, um, no, it's been really fantastic chatting to you. And um, I, you know, I'm really delighted you came on here. So thanks very much. It's been really great to have an insight into your life with your patients and also a bit of your home life as well with your, with your children. So thank you very much indeed. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I really hope you enjoyed listening and I'd love if you'd give me a five star review and subscribe so that other people can find me too. I'm also at Healthy Eating Doctor on Instagram and I have lots more nutrition education information on both my video courses and on my website healthyeatingdoctor.com.